we are about, we have sort of cracked into it a little bit, but chapter 8 of the book of Romans is where we are. Uh, I, I am saddened that there aren't as many here, either online or on here in the room. This is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Uh, it, it, it explains so much to us in one chapter. Let me review a couple of things with you if I can. Um, chapters, chapter 6 begins the transition in the book of Romans from Paul's focus and discussion about justification, which is by faith, that declaration of righteousness that God uh, decrees because we put our faith in his son, to sanctification, which is that process that the Father uses to transform us into the image of his son through the Holy Spirit. And so we reach the apex of his discussion about sanctification with chapter 8. It is a marvelous chapter. I mean, if if I can plead with you, if I have the right to do that, or if I can plead with you, make sure when you leave the room today or you sign off with your online that you understand what Paul's doing in chapter 8. Because it is, I think, one of the key aspects of our walk with God, this process of sanctification. Now remember where we are. He has ended chapter 7. Again, we talked a little bit about chapter 8, but I want to start there again. In chapter 7, it almost ends in despair, really, because Paul is just describing this struggle in his life now that he's put his faith in Christ. And it's summarized with that very famous verse, I do what I don't want to do. I cannot seem to do what I want to do. Woe is me. And so you have this, this, this almost despair. That's maybe too strong of a word, but it's, it's near that because Paul is like, okay, what do I do? Now, if Paul is experiencing that, it should not be something that you and I are necessarily discouraged by because the struggle to walk with God is not an easy struggle to walk with him in loving obedience. The very first verse of chapter 8 is, again, just one of the most powerful verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So let's start there. Please note the word therefore. So as you undoubtedly know, the word therefore, you're drawing a conclusion. You're tying what you're about to say with what has just been stated. So Paul is now drawing this conclusion. He's pulling everything together. The second thing I want you to notice is the word now. Now, obviously, you know that, but now is a temporal word. It's about time. Something has changed. Something has altered the condition of, of, the, human, of the human race. It's Jesus. And so the now is a marker that stresses the new covenant, the new era. There is therefore now no condemnation. The word condemnation is a word of judgment. It is used quite a bit in the, in the New Testament particularly. As a matter of fact, it's used 83 times in the New Testament. But that judgment has been taken care of. And notice the rest of the clause in chapter uh, 8, verse 1. For those who are in Christ Jesus. And you've heard me say this before, a number of you have been in the class for a while. That little phrase, in Christ Jesus or in Christ, is used 242 times in the New Testament. 
it stresses that sphere, that circle of security. And so if you're in Christ, how do you get into that circle? By putting your faith in him. And so just you need to really take this verse apart and just reflect upon it. It's an incredible confidence, confidence-related, uh, security-enthralling e- emphasis on what Jesus has done for us has changed everything. No judgment if you're in Christ Jesus. He experienced the judgment. He experienced the wrath from 11, from 12 noon until 3 p.m. on April the 3rd, A.D. 33, the earth was black. It was dark because the Father was judging the Son in our place. He was pouring his wrath out. So Paul has the right to say that because of what Jesus did, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So Paul is starting now, he's going to work his way back from seeming despair, if you will, to triumphant declaration of the change that Jesus has brought. And that affects not only justification, but it affects sanctification. Now he wants to further explain this. Verse 2, chapter 8. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so the this is what's important about chapter 8. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in the process of sanctification makes all the difference. Because, and he contrasts, you served, end of verse 2, the law of sin and death. See chapter 6. But now, you are under the law of the spirit of life. He sets you free. And the spirit is the Holy Spirit of life, spiritual life. That takes you back to John 3 and Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. You must be born again. So you are totally new. You're a new creation in Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the one who does that. That's what Nicodemus didn't understand at first. And Jesus explained it to him. So the Holy Spirit, who is is energized by uh, being the deity, the third person of the Trinity, empowers us that we're free. Free from what? From the sin of law, uh, from the law of sin and death. Notice again, free in Christ Jesus. There's that phrase again. It's the favorite phrase of Paul. He uses it 242 times to describe the circle of blessing for the believer. Verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How did he do that? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So how was verse 2 made possible? By what happened in verse 3. God the Father sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was undiminished deity plus perfect humanity. United in one person. And in that person of Christ, he condemned sin. He ended its reign and rule. Again, see chapter 6 of the book of Romans. And so what what you are beginning to see, and I'm hoping you're really following my explanation of these three verses, what you're beginning to see, because of the Holy Spirit, what Jesus won for us positionally, we are justified. That's our sphere of blessing. We, we are secure 
Now, the Holy Spirit enables us, empowers us to live it out practically. So our position in Christ results in, because of the Holy Spirit, us living out our position. We're positionally righteous. Now we live it. How? Why? Because of the Holy Spirit. Yes. Oh, please. You don't have to raise your hand. No, I don't mean that. Just go ahead and ask me a question. Um, you know, I can't help but think of Ray Comfort and his 180. This is the real 180. I mean, Paul's struggling. He, he can't. He just cannot fulfill what he wants to do. That's right. That's right. It's the Holy Spirit. And that's why you, you've been around me. You've heard me say this over and over again. The Holy Spirit is the sign of the new covenant, but he's the power behind the process of sanctification. If it were not for the Holy Spirit, we would continually be where Paul is. But we begin to experience the, the, the process of victory over embedded sin in our lives. And so these, these three verses of chapter 8 are, are just triumphant verses. Now, Paul has to, he's mentioned it, but he has to add something. He has to explain something. Well, okay, what about the law, though? Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so through the Spirit's power, we, believers of the new covenant, can now fulfill the requirement of the law. Chapter 7, he kept bringing up the power of the flesh. It's the power of the Spirit that overcomes the power of the flesh. And that's why the New Testament, and there are a number of places, but one of my favorites is in Galatians chapter 5, where Paul describes the war between the flesh and the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the more we yield to the Holy Spirit, we get victory over the power of the flesh. And the result is, it's it's just astonishing almost, we are able to fulfill the requirements of the law, our tendency to lie, our tendency to, to do the things that, that, that displease the moral character of God, which is what the law really is, we're now able to fulfill. So what the flesh could not do, the Holy Spirit enables us to do. It's a remarkable and quite astonishing aspect of the process of sanctification. What could not be done by the law, because the law did not promise transformation. The Holy Spirit, following putting our faith in Christ, enables us to do what the law could not do. As he says in Romans 7, 12, not to follow the law, the law law is perfect, righteous, and good. It's our fault. God has to change us. So we can live according to the standards of his moral character. Got it? Are you sure? All right, good. I hope that that really makes sense. Now, verse 5. Of all the things that he could bring up, he seems, he, Paul seems to want to especially stress our minds, our thought life, 
He wants to really emphasize that. Let me read these verses uh, following in verse 5 and, and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, notice the three things. The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, first. Two, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Three, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So you have to make a choice. Flesh or the spirit. In my daily walk, I wake up every morning. Am I going to serve the flesh? I'm going to live my life saying, okay, Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you for justifying me. But I'll take it from here. I'm okay. I'll see you in heaven. If that's your perspective, you're choosing to live according to the flesh, and you're going to fall on your face. So Paul says, it's really, it's, it's so interesting how he stresses this. You folks, I hate for you to get up. Because you're not as old as I am, but I know it's hard for me sometimes. So he stresses the power of the mind. Proverbs 23, verse 7, is an interesting proverb. Mind affects how you live. The mind energizes the choices you make. As a man thinks, Proverbs 23, 7 says, so is it. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, the Apostle Paul, it's another one of his wonderful letters. I believe we may have studied that book a while back. But in Philippians 4, 8, Paul says, think on these things. What is lovely, what is pure, what is edifying, what is praiseworthy. So when Paul in verses 5 and 6 and into verse 7 emphasizes the mind, he's reminding us of something that's in James chapter 1, verse 13 and following. Now, I'm drawing from lots of other scriptures. But there, Paul, there James stresses the evolution, I don't mean biological, but the evolution of sin. It begins with a thought, leads to a desire, and becomes an action. So you put all those passages together and, and insert them right here. The conclusion seems to be very practical application. What are you allowing in your mind? And he's going to do Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's been a verse of mine for 20 years. That's a, a great passage. You have to renew your mind. That's another another passage. From Romans. Yeah, I mean, yeah, from Romans. We'll get to it in about 2025 <laughs> at the rate we're going. But it's 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 an important. So I want I want you to let's talk about this. And guys online, you can certainly add something here as well. But in your own, and I'm not necessarily wanting you to share details, but in your own life, is this argument Paul's making meaningful, applicable to you? Do you understand what he's saying? What you put into your mind affects how you live. 
So you and I have to ask this question, and it's, it's an important question. What are we allowing in our minds? Okay, what does that affect? What are we allowing in our minds? What does that affect? What areas of our life does that affect? Well, every time we make a choice. Okay, now I'm, I'm wanting specific things here. What you put in your mind, what, what are areas of your life that, that, that that applies to? The choices you make each day. I would assume I, would assume I would be uh, watching porn or... <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, Joe, Joe here in the room said, uh, didn't quite say it the way you said it, Woody, but television, what we watch. In other words, another way of putting it is, is make it broad. Entertainment choices, right? Entertainment choices are a way in which we put things onto our mind. And, I mean, psychologists tell us that when you have images in your mind, which this is a very visual culture in which we live, images in your mind, you can't erase those images very easily. They're very difficult to erase. They keep popping up throughout our lives. I, and when we were back in Pennsylvania uh, visiting our remaining relatives that are still living. Peggy has a sister back there. I have a sister and lots of other cousins and every living human being within 25 miles we saw that's related to us. But as we were back, just images of when I was growing up, because we had discussions about when we were growing up, and all these images that I haven't thought about for years. Because I got, once it's in your mind, it's very difficult. Now, they, for the most part, they were very positive things. But I know if you would sit down with me in a very quiet, private place, I could tell you some images in my mind that are not edifying. So Paul is saying here, this is not a suggestion. It's in the imperative mood. It's a command. Set your mind on things of the Spirit. So it affects entertainment and choices. It affects what we read, doesn't it? It, it affects everything we're choosing to do. Now, that may not be as major an issue in your lives as it is in younger people, but social media choices. I just read in the Wall Street Journal, I just read an article on the increasing power of TikTok. Now, I only became familiar with TikTok about a year ago. But, I mean, it is an incredible element of social media. Very powerful. Part of the argument of this article is it's even more important in a lot of people's minds and face, a lot of people's lives than Facebook, Instagram, and some of the other things. Well, I had to look up why. What's going on with TikTok? Well, it took me about five minutes to find out why. And so you have to choose. It isn't that these things are necessarily all evil, but what are you putting in your mind? Because if you set your mind on the things of the flesh, okay, Lord, I can handle it. This doesn't bother me. I don't need to worry about it. I can watch whatever I watch. I can read whatever I read. I can be informed by whatever I'm informed. It won't affect me. You're an idiot. I'm sorry to be so blunt, but you're an idiot. It will affect how you live. And so Paul is saying, in the process of sanctification, you must choose, and, and, and Rob said it, you must choose what you're going to do in these areas every single day. Jim, uh, how does uh, covet, covetousness play into that? that it does. It aren't does, they all in, under that heading, kind of? It is. All, that's right. All, all of the areas... 
that impact and think of that thought, desire, action. All of the areas that impact desire. A biblical word is lust, and lust is not only sexual lust, it's lust for things and lust for power, lust for position, lust for influence. All of those things are not good things if you're interested in walking by the Spirit. I think I've told you this, but I, I'm going to share it again, because for me it was a really important decision. Peggy and I made a couple of uh, years ago now it is. We would, we would watch Fox News program, like then it was Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity, and it's not their evil or anything like that, but I'm telling you, we'd watch those things. By the end of the time, we're getting ready to go to bed, I am so churned up, I'm, I'm so, in some cases, angry, and so I go to bed all turned up, and the very first thing in the morning, I'd wake up thinking about all those things, frustrating, anger. And Peggy and I started talking about it. Is that a healthy way to go to bed? Is that a healthy way to wake up in the morning? Is that walking by the flesh or walking by the spirit? I'm not saying if you guys do all that, I'm not saying that's evil. All I'm encouraging you to do is think about the impact that's having on your your life, on your walk with the Lord. That's all I'm asking you to do. And it's little practical things. We must have a strategy for holiness. And my strategy is not the same as Bill's or Ed's or Joe's or anybody else in this room or, or Woody or Kevin or any of the other guys that are online. My strategy isn't your strategy. I'm not going to force you to adopt my strategy, but I am encouraging you because I love you as a brother in Christ. Develop a strategy for holiness. You ask yourself, am I being encouraged as I watch this, read this, whatever it is, to think about the Lord, to be edified, to be built up, or is it focusing on things that could actually lead to sin? And this is the, it is such a shrewd tactic of the devil. It is a shrewd, deceptive, I was going to use a really long word, but I won't use it, dangerous was the word that I'll choose to use tactic of the devil because he sucks us in and all of a sudden we're trapped in a habit and pattern in our lives that is not healthy spiritually speaking and so this is what paul is doing here he's helping us to understand that being in the process of sanctification which is what we're talking about in chapter eight you and I are not passive in this process. We're just sitting back in a rocking chair. Okay, Lord, you just make me holy. I'll just sit here. I'll do whatever I want, but I know you're at work, and I praise you for that. That is not, that is not the process of sanctification. This passage is filled with commandments. And commandments is an active choice of obedience. And so he's... Without, he doesn't list things. He doesn't itemize things. He just says, if you fix your mind on the things of the flesh versus fixing your mind on the things of the spirit, makes all the difference in the world. Because uh, I refer you again to verse 7. The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. That's a very strong statement. Two, does not submit to God's law. You're not interested in God's moral character. And third, you cannot please God. You will not be walking in loving obedience with him. 
So it's it's a it's a powerful and yet very practical, it seems to me anyway, very powerful and practical reminder that our mind matters. Years ago, I bet it's 50 years ago almost, maybe 40, John R.W. Stott, S-T-O-T-T. He was a British preacher, uh, preached at All Souls Church in London for many, many years, wrote a little book. It's a thin little book. I still have it in my office. It's, it's The pages are all shredded. It's yellow because I've read it and used it so many times. But the title of the book is Your Mind Matters. It's a fabulous little book. It's a little, it, it'll take, if you get it, it'll take you about 40 minutes to read it. Well, I shouldn't put it that way. You know, it depends on how fast you read and whether you stop and meditate and think about a paragraph. I can't read C.S. Lewis fast. <laughs> I can't. The Problem of Pain is a wonderful book of his. I mean, every time I read a paragraph, I mean, I got to stop and think about that paragraph. Do you know anybody that reads pains? Oh, there's probably some human being on earth that reads C.S. Lewis fast. I, I don't know. It could be, but somewhat. But it's but my point is this: that there are lots of resources out there, but there's also this choice, and this is how I'd like you to think about it. your strategy for holiness involves this: I want to observe what are the patterns and habits of my life, and it doesn't mean that those patterns and habits are necessarily evil, but where are those patterns and habits leading you? And Paul is encouraging us in these verses to focus and concentrate on what are we putting into our mind. Because the Holy Spirit, we've already read about it, the Holy Spirit is the source of liberty and life. And if he's the source of liberty and life, it is up to me to choose that path in my life which reinforces this liberty and life. Not hostile to it. Because as Paul writes in Galatians 5, there's a battle in your life going on between the flesh and the spirit. And you are responsible for which one's victorious in your life. All right, now, I'm done with this. I went down a number of bunny trails, but I really encourage, that's why this is such an important aspect of what really is going on in chapter 8. Are you with me? Do you have any questions or comments before we move on? Your mind matters. All right. Let's look at verse 9, 10, and 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Now, he's using a little bit of a different pronoun there. He's talked about to the Spirit, by the Spirit, with the Spirit. Now he says, but you are in the Spirit. There again, that little little preposition. As you are in Christ, we saw that in verse 1, in the Spirit. So that sphere, that circle of blessing and security, is not only being in Christ, but it's in the Spirit. Remember, the Spirit and Christ they're the second and third members of the Trinity. They're co-equal, co-essential, co-eternal with the Father. That's the nature of the Trinity. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So he's just stressing, since the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ 
does not belong to him. Note, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ. It's a wonderful affirmation of the Trinity. But it's all, the end of, of verse 9 is also important. When do you get the Holy Spirit? When does the Holy Spirit take up residence in your life? You confess and Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus. It's not a subsequent act. Where you come to faith in Jesus, and then one day, one week, one month, five years later, <clears throat> you're baptized by the Spirit. If you have the Spirit of Christ, you have Jesus. If you have Jesus, you have the Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life the moment you trust. One of the 33 things that happen to you the moment you put your faith in Christ. Now, that's a little doctrinal bunny trail, but I thought I'd stress that. But if Christ, I'm in verse 10 now, but if Christ is in you, or that's first class condition, you some translate that, but since Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Your body's decaying. Your body will experience death. But the spiritual life is eternal. And the resurrection awaits you, and your body and soul will be united and forever live in the resurrected body. But I love that. The spirit of life, spirit is life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness. Because remember, when the Father declares us righteous, it's not our righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. What I mean by that, it's not ours, but it's Christ's. And the righteousness of Jesus is now our righteousness. That's what makes us acceptable to the Father. And then he concludes, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which he does, because he that receives Christ receives the spirit, verse 9. Now, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The body is still a part of the old age, but it will be resurrected in the new age. That is the resurrection that is promised. So you have this in these first 11 verses of chapter 8. You have this incredibly important review of how important the Holy Spirit is in the process of sanctification. And in the process of sanctification, every day you and I wake up and we must make the decision, am I going to set my mind on the things of the flesh or the things of the Spirit, which impacts the decisions you make throughout your day. I'm encouraging you to think about specifically, what are you allowing into your mind? What are your patterns and habits that at least the Lord wants you to ask, is that spiritually healthy for you? I can't tell you that. I, you may ask me specific questions, and I may give you, here's what I would encourage you to think about, but I'm not going to give you my list. I've had parents when I was in, in higher education, parents or, or friends call me up and say, give me a list of books that my kids should read or give me a list of books my kids should not read. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to bind your conscience with my choices. 
But I am going to encourage you to think carefully about what you do read. Because I can read certain things that do not impact my mind. You may read things that immediately impact you, bring back all kinds of memories, all kinds of habits. And the wise thing for you to do is stay as far away from that as you possibly can. I had a mother one time, should I let my kids play with Pokemon cards? I'm not going to answer that question. That's not uh, to bind her conscience with the convictions I have. That's legalism. Because on every single question that she has, she's going to call me. I will become her rabbi or her bishop. God forbid that would ever happen. That's not my role. But my role is you work through it. You look at You do your homework. You decide. And you also then investigate where your kids are. Can my kids handle something? Yeah, I had parents call me up or write me or email me. Should I let my kids read the Harry Potter books? I'm not going to answer those questions. Because the more you do that, the more you become the Pharisee in people's lives. The Bible is encouraging each one of us wisely to choose and to investigate thought, desire, action. Where does this lead me? I think even more important, we need to help our kids learn how to choose. Because my kids went to college, kids that didn't know how to choose when they got to college, just went all over the while. Exactly. Because That's they were not trained how to choose. Exactly. Even if you're going to make mistakes. Big mistake, my opinion. No, you're absolutely right. Because you, you can, and, and that's what apparently you did, though. You can't be with your kids 24-7. But you can enable and help your kids to think wisely about life. And that is not easy to do, necessarily. I mean, I look at my grandchildren now. i got three of them. And I look at my grandchildren and I think, oh, my goodness, what, what is the world going to be like for them in 20 years? Because I look back over the last 20 years and oh my, things are not necessarily getting better. And, and the, the best thing to do is just, just get them involved with the things of the Lord. Get them thinking about the, getting reading the things of the Lord so that they start making the choices that God wants them to make. Because life is about making choices. Isn't it? And Paul is saying, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Not on the things of the flesh, and as you and we have already read this now, so that's very broad. I mean, it's very broad. What does that mean? Well, you have to look at some of the other things, like in Galatians five, where he itemizes the vices of this of the flesh and the virtues of the spirit. Don't choose. And if you're not in the habit of developing wise choices, and Billy used a good example, and you get into a college, a secular college atmosphere, you're going to be bombarded with so much thing. So much that absolutely undermines everything you believe is going to end up totally confused. You may surrender some of the things you believe. But if you're solid and committed and have thought through these things, it may not overwhelm you. All right. Thank goodness we spent 45 minutes on this. But it's really important. All right. I'm going to move to the next paragraph. Because... Jesus finished work on the cross. We appropriate that by faith. We are declared righteous. We're now righteous in God's eyes. 
the righteousness is Christ's righteousness applied or the words of theologians imputed to our lives. But much more happens at that moment we put our faith. We now become children of God. And verse 12 through 17, verses 12 through 17 develop the doctrine of adoption. We are not born into God's family. We become members of God's family when we put our faith in his son. Why is that so important? That's what he develops. Verse 12. So, therefore, ESV translates the un, then I would prefer to translate it. So, therefore, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led, I'm not sure I would translate that word led, L-E-D, in verse 14. I don't know what all your translations have. Because the Greek word is agontai. It's much stronger. For all who are controlled by or determined by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Hmm. Sons, children of God. Sorry, my phone's doing things. I'll turn it off. For all who are led by the Spirit are of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry. Abba, Father. Uh, There's so much to develop in this paragraph. Um, I'm going to stop at verse 15, although verse 16 and 17 are quite important too. But let me let me back up here and talk a little bit about what he's what he's dealing with here. Justification by faith makes us a servant. Strong word, slave of God. That remember chapter six. That's part of what he talks about. We were in bondage to sin, now we're in bondage to Christ. We have a new master. Adoption makes us children of God. Our lives as children of God are characterized by a new walk. I'm going to take a little bit of liberty here, but allow me to do this. When we begin the process of sanctification, we begin to take on the character traits of our father. Do you ever hear that phrase, like father, like son? Do you ever hear that? Or is it like son, like father? I forget which word is, but you've heard that. That applies here. We put our faith in Christ. We are declared righteous. We're now a slave. We have a new master. Okay. Now we also have a new family. We're in the family of God. We are adopted. I want to talk about that word adopted in just a minute. But we're adopted into God's family. We begin to take on the characteristics of our Father. God. 
J.I. Packer in his marvelous book, <coughs> Knowing God, near the end of the book, I forget which chapter it is, but it's a, it's a theme, the chapter's title has Sons of God, and he says the most, the most precious, the most precious term for the believer is now to be able to call God your father. And one of the themes he develops in that marvelous chapter is we begin to take on the character traits of our heavenly father. That's what Paul's talking about here. Because before you put your faith in Christ, you were, you were debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. You're debtors to God, who's done everything for you. Now we live by the Spirit. And the deeds of our body are in conformity with our new heavenly father. Why is that so? Because if you're led, if you are controlled by the spirit, that's how I would prefer to translate that. You will evidence being sons of God. You will begin to evidence the character traits of your father. You call God father. You begin to take on his character traits. Where are they summarized? Chapter five of Galatians. Verse 22 and 23. We did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, chapter 6. But we have the spirit of adoption. So one of the 33 things that happen to us when we put our faith in Christ is we are adopted into God's family. And the result of that is you call God Abba, Father. Abba, it, it's impossible to tr totally translate that. Because all we're doing there, it's an Aramaic term. We're bringing it letter for letter from Aramaic into English. When you do something like that, that doesn't help really explain what it means. And so Abba, is, it's really very, very difficult to translate totally what it means. We know this, it's a term of intimacy. Today, the modern Jewish person, in whether they're Orthodox, Reform, or Conservative Jew, usually refer to their father as Abba, because it's a term of love, of intimacy. It may be, I'm not always comfortable with this, but it may be, even to paraphrase it in modern English, calling God Daddy. It's that level of intimacy. What is really remarkable about that? is in Mark chapter 14, verse 56. Jesus is in the garden of, uh, verse 36, excuse me. Mark 14, verse 36. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, praying. Remember this very difficult, intimate prayer. Father, is there not another way for us to do this? Can't we develop a plan B? But whatever your will is, my will. I will do it. I'm paraphrasing the discussion. But in that, he calls the Father Abba. And if Jesus Christ can call God the Father Abba, Paul says, you can call him Abba. Now, the word adoption, we're translating a Greek word. Huiathesia is the Greek word. We're translating that. But it's the right way to translate it. In the ancient Roman world, I hope I can get through all this. In the ancient Roman world, adoption was a very common thing to occur. Do you remember, um, most of you probably have seen the movie Ben-Hur. Maybe you've read Lou Wallace's great book, Ben-Hur. He was an officer in the Union Army, came to know Christ, and wrote the book of Ben-Hur. And then it came into a very famous Hollywood movie with Charlton Heston as Ben-Hur. 
But you might remember Ben-Hur was a wealthy Jew who lived in Jerusalem, and a bunch of trumped-up charges, he became a slave on a galley ship in the Roman Navy. Remember that? And the Roman guy developed rhythm. And they ran by, it was a, a battle in the Mediterranean, they ran by the ship, and he is set free. And incredibly, in his freedom, he rescues this Roman proconsul. I don't know if you remember the story. The Roman proconsul takes him back to Rome and adopts him. Gives him his signet ring. Gives him his wealth. Gives him his property. Ben-Hur wasn't born, his son, but because of what he did, he adopted him. And listen, Ben-Hur therefore inherited all the, the, the property, all the rights, all the privileges of this Roman proconsul. So Paul is saying, and for the, the, the people who would have read this, because where is he writing? He's writing this to Romans, Christians who lived in Rome, one of the five house churches of Rome at that time. So they would have totally understood what he meant by that. I wasn't born into God's family, but I'm adopted into God's family with all the rights and privileges that go with that. And one of the terms he's going to use is you are an heir. And that's in the next verse. I don't know if I'll be able to get to it. But the next two verses, we become an heir of God. You see, that's one of, one of the values of adoption is you were nothing before that. You come into God's family by faith. Now you inherit from God all the rights, all the privileges that go with being a child of God. And the most important, first of all, is you can address God as Abba. My wife, her father, when she was in sixth grade, uh, she, Peggy had two other sisters, sister two years older, Linda, and her sister was three years older, Karen. He left them for another woman. Peggy was in sixth grade. He never saw his daughters again. What is the image that Peggy has of a father? It's horrible. I mean, she and I have talked, I've been married to her for 53 years. She was my high school sweetheart, but she's talked about that a lot during our marriage. I never came to understand what a real father is until I put my faith in Christ. Because my heavenly father will never leave me, will never forsake me, will never betray me. We'll, we'll, we'll never thwart my love for him. I mean, I don't know how you men are, but as every time she tells me about that, and Ruby, I, it's unimaginable to me that you would walk away from your children. What father would do that? I mean, he wasn't, he was a very, he worked for General Electric at that. He was very successful financially. But his love for this other woman was, was so perverted and he goes with her, leaves Peggy's mother, and never sees his three girls again. That's unimaginable to me. But Peggy said, I know my Heavenly Father will never do that to me. This is what Paul's getting at, because in the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world, the family was important, but it wasn't that important. Sexual immorality was pervasive. Adultery and I mean, it was pervasive. And so children are growing up not with a good, sound idea of a family. 
But Paul's saying, you come to faith in Christ. You are in the family of God. and You can call God Abba. He will never leave you or forsake you. And he adds another thought. Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. I will develop some of that next week. I'm almost out of time. But I want to first of all look at verse 16 with you. There is a mystical subjective element to our faith. Do you understand when I, when I use the word mystical? Do you know what I mean by that? Um, in other words, there is subjective emotional feeling about our faith. And Paul is keying in on that. The Spirit of God who indwells you confirms over and over and over again. The, the language is bears witness with our spirit. The soul slash spirit is the emotional side of what it means to be a human. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Heart is the center of our will. Mind is the center of our intellect and our thought process. Soul, spirit, is the center of our emotion. And strength is the metaphor for the body. It's a holistic love for God. So he's saying in verse 16, is the Holy Spirit bears witness with your emotion day in and day out confirming. It's like Jiminy Cricket whispering in your ear, you're a child of God. You're a child of God. You belong to him. Don't forget that. So there's a subjective mystical element to our faith. The Spirit confirms with our spirit, our soul, that we are children of God. Don't forget that. And he reminds us as we read his word. He reminds us as we hear message. He reminds us when we're with other believers and we talk about how the Lord is doing wonderful things in our lives, answering our prayers, etc., etc. Confirming you are a child of God. And then if you are a child, you're an heir. I'm out of time, but I'm going to put, leave with this question. If you're an heir, that means you're going to inherit something. Mm-hmm. Here's the question I want you to think about. And I know you won't do it, but write your thoughts down on a piece of paper. What will you inherit? Because inherit's a future word. To be an heir is a future word, okay? <clears throat> Peggy and I have a will. Okay, and our vast estate will be inherited by our children. Now, it isn't that vast, but you know, well, we need a lot of reasons to do that today. You really want to be careful. You want to do it legally. You want to make sure you're doing it right because if you die without a will, you got all kinds of problems. The state's going to come in. It's going to be a mess. So that's part of the practical reasons for doing it. But it, in a way, God has a will. Now, not that God's going to die when you die. You go to be with him. You inherit something. What is it that we inherit? We'll answer that question next week. All right? Isn't this a great passage of scripture? I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but it's one of those 
passages that, oh man, you just want to kind of read it and reread it. This is how important I am to God. All right. Exciting. Thank you, Woody. I'm glad you found it exciting because I do find it exciting too. And every man online and every man here in the room is really excited. But like typical Amen. men, we don't show our emotion. But anyway, all right. I'm going to pray here. It's, I'm out of time. Father, thank you for this marvelous, wonderful, transformational passage in Scripture. It reminds us of all that happens to us when we put our faith in Christ. And this process of sanctification, which is really what this chapter ultimately is all about, is the stressing the importance of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for my own life, myself. I pray for these men as well. Lord, help us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, not on the things of the flesh. Help us every choice we have to make to think, is this going to impact a thought life that is honoring to you or a thought life that actually is honoring the flesh? Lord, sometimes that means we have to make some pretty tough decisions. We have to reorder things, uh, reorganize things. We have to deal with some of the patterns and habits. So, Lord, only the men in their own lives can make those decisions. Only they can do that kind of, a, of, a, of an inventory of their lives. But Paul is saying something extremely important to us. We want to walk with you in loving obedience. And part of that is setting our, things in the, our minds on the things of the Spirit. And then just thank you for reminding us that we're in your family. And because we're in your family we are being transformed into the image of our Heavenly Father. We're taking on His character traits. But also, our intimacy and love for you goes to such an extent, we can even call you Abba, a term of tremendous intimacy. So, Lord, we thank you for these grand truths that you've reminded us of in this quite wonderful passage. Be with these men. I don't know all about their lives. I don't know what they're wrestling with. I don't know what decisions they need to make. Give them the wisdom that comes from you, from your word that's found in your word. And may the Holy Spirit continue to remind us every hour of every day that we are a child of God. We belong to you and your family. You will never leave us. You'll never desert us. You're never going to leave us for someone else. We're your child. So that's a tremendous thought that has enormous implications for how we live our lives. We want to please you. We don't want to displease you. So we commit each one to you. Give us a good rest of this day. May we represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.